Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Zach on presenting duties along with Alex today. Alex, I've been looking forward to this. We've you got... jumped on this. You were Absolutely. like, oh, I want to do this one. I want it, want it, want it, want it. So tell us who we've got. Oh, we have the inimitable Eleanor Yanagar back again, uh, because not only because people just fucking love her, but because finally the book is out. The book is out, baby! <laughs> Go forth in your thousands and buy the damn book because it is brilliant. It is a graphic guide to the Middle Ages and Zach and I are completely in love with it. We just keep finding new things we love about it. It's, it's like it's almost draw worthy. I'm really, really excited about it because I think that it does a good job of like saying what I've been saying all along, which is that uh, the Middle Ages fun actually. Yeah. Imagine. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's really nice to be able to express that um, in a manner. And uh, my illustrator Neil is just so incredibly fucking talented. So oh, it's, it's just amazing, isn't it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So basically, it is all in graphics and cartoons and illustrations, a history of the Middle Ages. That's what yeah. it is. Uh, I want to ask you first, we're going to pick out some of our favourite pages and quiz you on them. Oh, okay. All right. All right. We have a few <laughs> questions in advance, uh, but you can handle this shit. You're good. Uh, yeah, I'm all right. All, we need to talk about the instruction because uh, we're going to ask you, why did you want to write this book? Because everyone's going to ask you that stupid question. But yeah. your introduction covers it. You had to write this book, didn't you? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, I don't want to have to write this book, but I have to because like, you know, the introduction, I had originally when I wrote it, like wrote that this annoying guy in the entire way through. And my editor said, um, you know, I, I hate this guy. He's really annoying. And I was like, and I was like, yeah, me too. Like, and that's why I had to write this book. So basically it's, you know, it, it introduces the trouble that all medieval historians have, which is this idea that people have that, you know, there was a uh, 1100 years of history that were bad. <laughs> and, I you know, just, it. The guy in question is a cartoon of essentially a wanker banker. Uh, any mm. what one of those is in the older gastro pub saying, there's no point knowing much about it. Anyway, it was the Dark Ages after all. Just a bunch of religious people rolling in the dirt. Unlike me, I'm very smart. <laughs> like, and then this, little, this guy, literally this guy, you know, and it, it's one of these things where, you know, you could say this is hyperbole, but I deal with this daily, like daily on Twitter. There's someone who will say this to me and it's just, it's madness, you know? Absolutely. Uh, let's, oh, let's pick... Let's pick a page. Uh, let's go for 
one thing I really love because uh, it kind of rotates between sort of more modern cartoony stuff and mm-hmm. some really good stylistic stuff um, that has medieval feel about it. And one of those is the complexity of the period. So how do you distill the complexity down for a book like this? Oh, I mean, th- that was one of the big and r- real challenging things. So essentially what I did for the book is I based it off of first year courses that I teach. Okay. So when I teach this to like a group of 19 year olds, what is it that I need them to understand? And how is it that I kind of like get that through their heads? So it works in a timeline, you know, which you would kind of expect. And I kind of keep coming back to like various themes, which is like, okay, so well, where's the church at at this point in time? Who are the big kind of like political superpowers? what is going on culturally, you know? And so I just kind of have like ribbons that go throughout where I touch on these things again. So, you know, a lot of the time it'll mean that we're kind of coming back to similar places geographically, or there will be certain themes that we pick up again and again. Um, So, you know, like you will see where the Normans happen to be at a particular time, or you will check out um, how, you know, Islam is spreading and where it's at, or we will have a think about like how philosophy is moving forward. So it's basically about thinking about how things do move over the period and trying to make sure that I kind of keep those strands moving. It's like braiding or something. (laughs) (laughs) So take us right back to kind of the the start of all of this and the fall of Rome and the way in which you kind of tackle that, because I've always kind of had a head scratch and I've realized kind of going through this that a lot of the things that I thought I knew and things that I've even taught were just completely wrong, which is really quite embarrassing. But this is why people <laughs> need to buy the damn book. Um, so talk us through the fall and how we sort of start to get these irritating perceptions that people have. Yeah, it's really interesting because the way that we relate to, you know, the quote unquote fall of Rome is this idea of that it is like a huge schism and there's sort of like the before and there's the after. And part of that obviously is historians fault because, you know, we're the ones out here trying to periodize, right? And, you know, I'm complicit in this, right? Because I'm like, oh, well, the medieval period is from when Rome falls until afterwards, you know, and and I tell people that. Um, But the thing that you have to think about that and what you need to really challenge yourself with is that first of all, you got the question, well, does Rome fall? Right? Because Constantinople, if you asked anyone on the street in Constantinople, they'd be like, no, we're Rome, homeboy. You know, like we're Eastern Rome. They don't call themselves Byzantine. We call them Byzantine, you know, and they have, you know, the same structure of government. They've got, you know, all the same kind of cultural trappings of life and they keep going right up until, you know, the 15th century. So it's like, well, you know, it's one of those things where people ask me sometimes I'll be like, well, when did Rome fall? And I'll always say kind of like, well, which one? Because I think there's a really good argument to be made that it doesn't fall until uh, Constantinople does. Um, But the way that we think about 476 is really interesting because we say, oh, well, you know, there were a bunch of Roman emperors and then the barbarians came in and then everything was completely different. And it's a really strange way of looking at things, actually, because in the first place, the Roman emperor who gets conquered at this point in time was like a usurper anyway. Like, you know, I couldn't even get into this in the comic, but it's like technically the correct quote unquote Roman emperor was like over in what's now Croatia at the time and was prevented from being getting back. And basically that emperor's dad had put him on the throne. It was all very confusing, right? So what's the real difference between this constant kind of political struggle about like someone being on the quote unquote throne of Rome and, you know, a 
quote unquote barbarian successor state. Because in the first place, like one of the things that people don't really think about or realize is that, you know, even by this point in time, no one was ruling from Rome. We'd already moved to Ravenna at this point in time. Like Rome is the name, but it's not what's going on. And the way that the barbarian successor states really kind of utilized power or wanted people to think about them was they were they would like attempt to be as much like Rome as they possibly could be. And they're like, well, yeah, that's how you can prove that you are powerful. That's how you prove that, you know, you're the person who should be in charge is by being actively Roman, right? So it's not even like something that Romans themselves would have thought at the time. They didn't go, oh, I guess Rome is over. It's just like, okay, well, I suppose things are sort of under new management. And sure, eventually we definitely see things like a shortening of trade lines or a fracturing of government. So, you know, the situation in Spain under the Visigoths is then different from the situation on the Italian peninsula. And someone in France isn't necessarily getting their amphorae from Libya, which is where all of the amphorae essentially came from under the Roman empire. But that doesn't necessarily mean like it's bad. It's just different. So it's important for us to kind of think that like our real desire to kind of like put a big strong line under things and say, this means one thing that means another thing. That's not really how people on the ground experienced it or thought about it. Is it Odysseur? Is that how you say his name? Yeah, Odysseur, I think. I love, yeah. there's a cartoon of him hacking down a Roman monument and it just says, rawr, nothing juicy here, keep it. <laughs> yeah. uh, the first thing I went looking for in this book, because I knew you wouldn't fail me, I knew it, girl, the Nika riots. That's brilliant, that page. I love that page. I'm obsessed with the Nika riots. Yeah. I'm absolutely obsessed with the Nika riots. Which is um, why I knew you wouldn't fail me. Yes. I am now obsessed with them too. So this is 5.32. Have you heard about these, Zach? No, this, this is going to be an education. This makes the football factory look like pussies. That's right. <laughs> it's like basically there was a giant riot in Constantinople that is based off of the chariot teams. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is really interesting because it's like, so the chariot teams, there were four chariot teams. There's the greens, the blues, the whites, and the reds, I think, off the top of my head. Um, and they... Like basically everyone had a faction and they would like be really kind of politically involved and there would be like, you know, they would take a stance on taxes or they'd take a stance on one thing or another. Um, and there was an incident uh, in which case some people got murdered <laughs> as a result of some like, uh, like some a little kind of like inter inter chariot team fighting. And then two of the team members kind of took sanctuary and they basically should have been let off, but they got hanged by the um, emperor anywhere and everyone lost their minds. And there were like several days of rioting, something like 10,000 people were killed. Um, and it looks like a where's Wally page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I think it's so interesting because it shows us in the first place that like this whole sports team factionalism isn't anything new. It also puts paid to the idea that you can just have sport without politics. Right. Because it's like, Oh boy, we could not have sport without politics in the early medieval period. You can't have sport without politics. Now it's always been political. Right. And it's also really interesting because, you know, as I say, it really lets you know that Rome still exists, right? Because it's like, in the first place, we got chariot teams all over the place. In the second place, we've got cities big enough that you can have huge riots like this and you can have like a massive loss of life and kind of life still just sort of goes on. We still got emperors, you still got the whole nine yards, right? So it's this perfect sort of distillation of how like this myth that everything absolutely changes is way too simplified. Um, Plus, I just think it's cool because there's chariot teams. So. Yeah, it's one of those things. 
Do you know what? It's one of those things, isn't it, where you're like, I probably don't have room for this because I have important shit to cover, but I'll die on this hill. It's going. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I would. Uh, I will go to bat for this all day long. There's no way that anyone can take yeah. this one away from me. Yeah. Mine is the lengthy, over lengthy anecdote about Kitchener and the military cross medal ribbon and the shit show of. Uh, so basically the, the king's uh, advisor punks him by pulling out a giant encyclopedia of medal, medal ribbons just to make the meeting as long as possible. Um, and like that anecdote was going in. It's about two pages long. I was like, I don't care. Going in. Not cutting it. Fine. You yeah. can't. Yeah. I will, I will cut the Battle of the Somme before I cut that. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have your babies, right? Yeah. You gotta have your historical babies. And this riot is uh one of my historical babies. So I mean there are some topics that must be really quite hard to cover in a way that people aren't gonna be kind of hugely offended by. Um, <laughs> in the sense that some of these discussions end up being really quite polarized. So how do you tackle some of those? I mean, one of the things that you've obviously got to deal with is the spread of Islam. You've got to be quite sensitive from uh, a, a pictures and a drawings perspective, because obviously mm -hmm. you can't um, draw an image of the Prophet Muhammad. But this is also a topic that a lot of people kind of get quite angry about mm -hmm. when you put mm -hmm. forward certain perspectives. So how, how did you tackle that? So it's a really interesting one um, because, so in the first place, you know, I just wanted to go out and I wanted to talk about, you know, like the historical Muhammad. So this is what I always usually say, you know, when I'm teaching it in classes, it's like, you know, you kind of have, it's the sort of the same thing. It's like the king's two bodies, right? You know, and it's the same with anything, you know, you've got the historical Jesus and you've got the religious Jesus. You've got the historical Muhammad and you've got the religious Muhammad. And um, I'm only set up to <laughs> tackle the historical Muhammad, right? You know, because I'm a historian, that's my job. So, you know, and we know a lot about his life. Life, which is really great and interesting. So, you know, I tried to focus on telling the story more of like the culture and the place and what's going on with that. Um, we do have a picture of the angel Gabriel um, going to the cave. Um, we obviously do not have any pictures of the prophet himself. Like it is, it is not that kind of party. Absolutely not. Um, but you know, it's one of those things where we had to even sort of like really think if that was going to be acceptable. Um, our picture of the angel Gabriel is based on a historical picture, mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why we really liked having it in there actually is because it's actually nice to, you know, kind of point out that, um, there, there are sort of like historical precedents for these things and there's links to it. The way that people oftentimes feel about Islam is really interesting as well um, within this because we're kind of primed to see everything necessarily as like um, a zero sum game. It's like either this one thing happens or that other thing happens, this is good or that's bad. And I think especially in terms of the rise of Islam, when we think about it, this is actually a story about a huge part of the world kind of coming together for political reasons as much as religious reasons. So, you know, this is a huge swathe of the world that's kind of like, well, you know, I might want like my taxes alleviated. That's a really good reason, you know, to, to kind of like uh, convert religions. Or, you know, I'm not particularly satisfied with rule in Constantinople. That's a million uh, you know, days away from me and, you know, why should a bunch of people over across the sea be reining me in? Um, and then, you know, even in places like, you know, what is now Spain, like over on the Iberian Peninsula, it's like, I mean, the, Vis the Visigothic Kingdom, RIP, right? <laughs> you know, like, I, I just, I'm afraid that, like, I can't get too worked up about, you know, what happened to the Visigothic Kingdom. What I always say about this is they, they topple really quickly. And, you know, to give the Visigoths their due, the fact that it was really easy to conquer them basically tells you that they were actually a pretty good governmental system. 
because like once you took the head off, it all just kind of collapsed, right? So it was really easy to replace. And so, but that's the best I can give you, right? Like I'm, I'm afraid that I'm not losing any sleep over the Visigothic kingdom. You can't make me. And I mean, <laughs> I think also um, it's really uh, important and interesting to talk about sort of like uh, the medieval Islamic world because it's so incredibly complex and interesting. And I mean, what I always say to my students is if I like was forced into a time machine at gunpoint and I had to go back and live in, you know, the medieval period, I am picking like the Umid Caliphate Spain every time. Like I'm going to Cordoba. Like that is like, I'm not, right next a, to the Mesquita, which is the most yeah. awesome building in the whole of Spain. It's yeah. Like, and I'm going to Alhambra. And I'm going to eat dates and I'm going to, you know, enjoy one of the really rich educations that's open to women and, you know, like in a lot of ways, actually, in the medieval period, like Islam's the party religion. Like we see these hand wringing letters in Central Europe, for example, um, when I mean, this is more early modern, but like when Muslims start kind of like coming in and there'll be like all these Hungarians being like, you know, everyone is just going to convert to Islam because it's so much easier than Christianity. Like we've got <laughs> we have got to put a stop to this. So it's like it's not even necessarily like a religious concern. It's like, oh, well, that's those are the people who are having fun. Like those are the people who are having like a relaxed, nice time. And I think it's so important to tell these stories because the way that we think about religion a lot of times is like, oh, it's this fixed thing. It's always one thing. And that's not true. Culture changes all the time. Things shift all the time. And I think this is a really fruitful and important way of having this discussion about how culture and society works with these particular religious aspects. What is, because I got to this word and I was like, I ain't never heard that word in my life, a thalassocratic city-state. Ah, the Thess yeah, the Thessalocratic city-states. So uh, these are the maritime republics, yeah? Oh, boom, like Venice. Yeah, yeah. So basically these are like your Venice, your Genoa, you know, um, your Pisa, all those places. And they're the people who put a bunch of money into boats, <laughs> essentially. Um, and they're really interesting because, you know, like, well, the Italian peninsula in general in the medieval period is like totally wild. Like now we tend to think about these guys and say, oh, yeah, well, it's Italy, isn't it? Like, that's like one unified culture. And they are like, no, homeboy. It's like me and my boys in the city and we act in a particular way and we've got ships, right? So like interestingly like venice for example and this is true like if you ever spend any time like out in the uh, mediterranean ocean uh mediterranean ocean girl mediterranean sea and like you know when you go to greek islands and stuff like sometimes you'll go places and they're like yeah we were colonized by the venetians right and you know you'll have like all these like parts of you know like buildings and things that are kind of like based on venetian things you'll see like um the venetian winged uh lions and stuff around and it's because these thessalocratic city-states have such immense power and money um because they basically control shipping lines and it's an extraordinarily lucrative way of doing things and i think it's really important to talk about as well because one of the things that people think about the medieval period is they go oh well no one there was no more trade anymore and everything just shut down and like nothing was good ever again and it's like okay well, we'll explain venice like where'd all that money come from right and you know they're moving from you know the crimean peninsula through the bosphorus over to the middle east northern africa and they're just moving stuff around the shop pretty much the entire time so they all get a lot of money and prestige basically by controlling shipping in the Mediterranean. Um, and then, and you can learn a new title about it. And that's fun. You know, that's well, the, 
Well, the Venetians also kind of rat bags, though. I mean, oh I'm yeah, oh god, yeah. Phoenix <laughs> Mark. I'm thinking what happens with the Fourth Crusade. You know, oh yeah. <laughs> Like that's the thing is like they make all this money off of like the crusades as well, which I think is really funny. Where they they're like, oh yeah, we're good Christians, we're good Christians. So I'm like, give us a bunch of fucking money right now, or like <laughs> in order to get over there, are we going to help? Other than this, no. <laughs> like, you know, and I find that really funny. Um, and they're also, you know, all these guys are a big part of the reason why the Black Death spreads as quickly as it does, because um, they were all on the Crimean Peninsula when the Black Death is kind of introduced there, and them fleeing is like what brings it like further. So the, you know, they're they are total. They're totally ruthless uh, in terms of their their pursuit of keeping this particular maritime power and they do like pretty much for a long time it's like there's nothing else to say about it like it takes basically until the ottoman empire for there to be another really big maritime power in the mediterranean sea they just have it completely on lock and let's go from one kind of maritime power to another the vikings we were talking um, a few weeks ago to an expert on the vikings who kind of educated us on how everything that we thought we knew was just not the case. How did you tackle it in your book? Yeah, so I get really excited about the Vikings and for probably the same reasons as this expert, right? Because it's really interesting because it does a couple of things for us. So in the first place, there's just like the culture itself of Viking myths that is so interesting. Because like, are are they pricks who are going to come and attack your city and or monastery? Yes. Okay. Like, I'm not saying that they're not, right? <laughs> okay. But they're also just kind of traders. And they're also kind of farmers a lot of the time. And they're also, you know, there there are so many things. And it, it is just a really interesting society. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar to our own, right? Where it's like, well, if you go home with a bunch of, you know, Vikings, they're probably just like having a farm and like keeping some livestock or whatever. But their military wing... <laughs> You know, it's doing some things, you know, and so it's actually a lot like us today. Um, and one of the things that I really wanted to kind of get across uh, when I was talking about the Vikings is how they're everywhere in Europe. It's like we when we say, oh, Viking now, we tend to go, oh, yeah, well, it's some guys who were up in like Scandinavia. And it's like, and Paris and Constantinople and basically anywhere yeah. there was a river and yeah. Russia. <laughs> it's just like, you know. We had Caitlin on and she said um, that they were on the River Volga. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And they had like permanent settlements and stuff that they had set up all up and down along the Volga. So one of the things I really wanted to do with this too is show the kind of continuity between um, Vikings and Norman culture as well because like norman culture which kicks off you know basically it's like there's the viking culture and then the normans kind of take up the mantle of vikingness after there and it's because they are a bunch of vikings that like stayed in northern france and well, so i love ambling around sicily picking up norman castles exactly castles yeah and I'm, I'm obsessed with norman sicily too so there's a there's a lot on norman sicily every hilltop there's like a new castle and you're like well it's just like the castles at home except it's not cold yeah, I know. It's uh, I just I love it. I love it. So, um, you know, I wanted to kind of show how like these things kind of over time change and they can turn into like another culture, but some parts of it retain like the same thing. Um, but I also find it really interesting because the Vikings have such a kind of um, 
like almost uh, they, they, they really are responsible in some ways of kind of turning people against the Carolingians as well, right? So they kind of like exacerbate the collapse of the Carolingian empire because, you know, Charlemagne has this bright idea of being like, oh yeah, well, I'm like God's military representative on earth. This is why you need me as an emperor. Aren't you glad that like the Roman emperor is back and it's me, Charlemagne. And then it's like a couple generations later, you know, of fail sons and, you know, Vikings attacking constantly. And everyone's like, okay, so if you are the representatives of God on earth, how come these pagans are kicking my ass all the time? (laughs) <laughs> and it's like they and they don't have a good answer for that. And it also kind of is an interesting and important thing to have a look at, because I think as modern people, a lot of the time we go, oh, well, like an empire is always better. Right. Like an empire always means that things are more stable and better. And that's not necessarily how medieval people experienced it. And one of the things that kind of like precipitates the downfall of, of them is that people are like, I don't want a ruler who's really far away. I need someone who can come take care of these Vikings now, right now and look rulers are the ones who were best placed to handle that so it's really interesting because it kind of shows up a lot of our assumptions about how power works at the time we have reached the end of the early medieval period um the year 2000 the world mm-hmm. lost shit we had people convinced that the world was going to end in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And it was terrible, and all the computers were going to die and that. Uh, you have a, a wonderful page in this book that is entitled Apocalyptic Anxiety. How did people deal with the coming of the year 1000? Oh, yeah, for real. They were like, <laughs> they were like that's it. We're screwed. Um, and it's, it's like one of, you know, one of the things to understand about Christianity um, that is really important. And that, again, we kind of we kind of don't think about this anymore. Right, is that Christianity is a linear religion. It's moving from the creation in the Garden of Adam and Eve, and there is necessarily an end to it. So, like, uh, you know, any, any glance at uh, the apocalypse slash revelation, um, the best book of the Bible, in my opinion, <laughs> will tell you that, like, we're supposed to be, like, getting towards the end of the world, right? And Christians and Christian society in the medieval period really understood themselves as like somewhere in the middle, right? So it's like after Jesus is coming and now you're sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back again and the world's going to end. And medieval people also have a real thing about numbers. Um, They really like numbers. They consider like numbers to be like extremely important. Um, And, you know, the way that they kind of think about mathematics is that all of this stuff is kind of connected up with the divine to a certain extent. So it's like knowledge itself is contained in the divine and blah, blah, blah. So the more you know about it, the closer you are to God. So the year 1000 looks like it's like, well, yeah, it's a pretty long time, right? So if it's like from Jesus to the end point, like a thousand kind of makes a lot of sense. And then you've got Viking attacks happening. And then you've got like this. And then you've got that. And people are like, okay, that's it. This is definitely over. So like um, there's a big preacher here called Wolfstan who was always going on about this. And he was like, oh yeah, the whole world is about to like collapse. And people were like, yeah, probably. I bet that's true. You know? And so uh, obviously that came and went and nothing happened, but it also kind of helps kind of like affect 
the church, when the church becomes more powerful, they have this real thing where they're like, you cannot go around predicting the end of the world. Okay. Because if you go around predicting the end of the world, like look what happened in the year 1000. And then people are going to think that the end of the world isn't real, but the end of the world isn't real, but you just don't know about it. Okay. And so like, there's this big uh, move on the part of the church to just stop people from like trying to, from coming out with their, it's the end of the world sermons. Because uh, it freaks people out. And then when you're not right, it makes everybody look stupid. So it's uh, interesting because you see all of these kind of like religious prohibitions against that later. So let's move this kind of into more of the middle of the middle ages, if you will, and, and events that people hopefully are kind of familiar with. I mean, people might still pay attention uh, just that little bit more um, when they hear this. But you start talking about something called the blue banana. Yeah. Explain to people what that is before people kind of rage quit in disgust. Yeah, the blue banana. I would like to ask you this if he thinks I'm making this up. (laughs) I know, right? Like, so I I swear to you, this is a real term and it's a real term that urban historians and like uh, city planners in general use. And the blue banana is a reference to kind of like the real hardcore shape of things in Europe where kind of like big cities and industry develops. So it's kind of like from London and then it goes east, it's kind of through like the lowlands in Germany and then it goes down into um, into like Milan and Northern Italy. And these are centers where we see lots and lots of trade back and forth, a really intensive city growth. And that's one of the big differences between like the early medieval period and the high and late medieval period is that in the high medieval period it's like the cities are back baby they're back and (laughs) it's not like to say that there weren't cities uh in the early medieval period like rome's still there obviously constantinople's still there we're talking about cordoba but it's just that like in other places that were formerly less important suddenly you have big cities springing up Um, And a lot of what you see is within that kind of blue banana corridor. And so it's a kind of way that we think about how trade works. Why blue, though? Why not green or... I don't even know. You know, like I was wondering... My friends, Chelsea play in an FA Cup final tomorrow. And it's the title of our song, Blue is the Colour. Okay, controversial. We've gone straight to Chelsea stuff already. We yeah. also know what side Alex is taking in the Nika riots. It's all happening. So, um, yeah, you're blue, clearly. Speaking of taking sides and a total shit fest, uh, when you got to writing about the Crusades for this, did you get to like, yeah, boom, the showstopper part? Or are you like me and you were like, damn, this is the shit everyone wants to read, but it's going to stop me writing about re- really esoteric stuff that I'd write. Yeah, that's 100% me. Like, I'm not a Crusades girl. Sorry. I just want to just educate <laughs> people about some totally, like, tiny little aspects of medieval life, and they're going to make me waste those pages on something like that. Oh, that is completely it. And you know how hard it is to write about the Crusades? In the first place, there's a billion of them. Yeah. They, just, they just do not stop coming. There's just another crusade every five years because they suck and they don't work. And so they've got to have another one and they've got to have another one. And you know it's the bit that like every person is going to flip immediately too. So you know you have to do it justice, right? You've got to do it right. But I'm not interested in <laughs> Sorry, sorry, everybody. You know, I don't if you care. get it wrong, there'll be a crusades expert out there. I just saw oh, a yeah. kid's book about the First World War, which is basically a comic. Uh, and uh, we've got to the one bit I haven't written because I just can't be bothered is Passchendaele because I already did a book on that and it bothers yep, me. Yep, and it, it's just one of those things where, like, I you know I have it there in the outline and I'm like, 
oh, it's coming, you know? So I just, I, I kind of tried with that to focus on the aspects that I do find interesting, which is kind of like, how is it preached and how does it spread? Like, what does it mean for people back home? Um, duh, like I'm trying to make sure that everyone understands that there was just a bunch of people in the Middle East minding their own fucking business and then a bunch of people come out of nowhere and, and, and it's like oh Christ okay um, you know so great artwork in there though with speech bubbles like come fellows we are away to the holy land Yes. <laughs> the art- artwork here is really good because um, Neil worked really closely with a lot of um, actual crusades images. So mm. we tried really hard to, wherever possible, basically throughout the book, if there was a historical image, we tried to use a version of that um, to kind of really underline our point about how things worked. And uh, the Crusades is one of those things where we have a lot of pictures. Now, obviously, like, it's not photorealism, but it's important to kind of understand how medieval people themselves thought about it. And for me, that's what's interesting about the Crusades, right? It's like, well, what do medieval people think about the Crusades? The Crusades themselves, ah. Yeah. uh, Your amazing illustrator appears to have lost his shit on page 86, where he just resorts to drawing stick figures near Antioch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like now, yeah, the yeah, the guy, yeah. it's like there's one there. Here's it's another. Hit on the head with the oh god, is it the hilt or the stock? It's the hilt. I know, right? right? It's the hilt. I think. Yeah. It's like yeah. There's a Dessa. There's Antioch. There, 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 there. They are. All right. Are you happy? And like, uh, so that basically kind of sums up our relationship to it. I think, uh, but. You know, obviously you can't not talk about it. it. It is important. I'm not saying that it isn't important. I just feel like it's such a minefield because Crusades people are such Crusades people, you know, and so you've got to, you've got to do the right thing and say, you know, enough about it. But I also, like, you could get bogged down so easily. You could just do an entire one about the cruise. I mean, I'm not going to ever write that, but you could do an entire, you know, graphic guide just about the Crusades. Dan Jones. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today can have that one yeah i'm i'm good thanks <laughs> no absolutely. let me come in with a, a nerdy kind of academic-y type question then yeah this is the time when we start to see, <laughs> this is the time when we start to see unis being formed and yeah. oxford and cambridge and all of those colleges all competing and i was here first and then i was better and so on. talk us through that whole process because it's not just happening in England it's it's happening across Europe at this time 
Yeah, that's right. Um, and so like, this is the stuff that I find like so good. Right? I'm all like, I need more time to talk about universities, baby. Um, so we have our very first one um, opens up in Bologna. And then number two is Paris. And then number three is Oxford. Like that's the, them's the, the way it is. And then you also have places like Salerno, which is like a dedicated medical school. Right. And so this is when we get just the start of universities themselves. And I think that's a really important thing to talk about because when people talk about the medieval period, like it's this write off point of time and they're like, oh, and everyone was stupid. And it's like, literally, literally they invented universities. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Um, of course, universities look very different uh, to how they are now. Cause like in the first place, you know, now the way that we think about a university is like, oh, there's a campus and here's the college and then you sign up. And like, so at places like Oxford, for example, yeah, you totally have these established schools. But for example, Paris is way more of like a vibe, right? Um, so in Paris, it's just kind of like, well, there's a lot of people who are teaching in Paris and you can just like go to Paris and avail yourself. In a lot of ways in, in Paris, you kind of pick the teacher you want to work with. And it's really interesting because the way that medieval universities are set up really varies as well. So like Bologna was set up because a bunch of students wanted it set up. So the students go out and they find masters and they say, okay, come to Bologna, we're starting up a university. Paris is set up by the church itself because Paris, you know, pretty much in the medieval period is, yeah, I, I would say that you, there's a strong argument to be made for Paris being the most important medieval city in, in Europe. Um, there's a strong case for that. So basically the church is like, okay, right. We're going to have to have a university here. We're setting this up. Here's some people who are getting paid. Oxford set up by the crown where, cause people are like, oh shit, I hear there's universities quick. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, we got one of those too. Right. So there are all these different ways of for detective drama in about 2000 years time. Exactly. You know, got to get out in front of that. So the, there's all these different ways to set up a university, but what you do at a university is the same thing, which is you've got two different things you can learn. You can learn first of all, the trivium, and if you learn the trivium, then you get a bachelor's degree. And the trivium is logic, grammar, and rhetoric. Um, all in Latin, obviously. So like grammar just means learning Latin, to be honest. Um, logic, you know, yeah, basic kind of formulations of arguments and rhetoric, arguing. And the major thing that people seem to do at medieval universities is scream at each other. Like that's their vibe. Um, Abelard, who I, like Peter Abelard, who I write about a lot in here, he like becomes famous because he's really good at screaming at people. So like, and he just kind of like shows up to other people at the University of Paris's lectures and calls them an idiot and like stuff like that. So that's pretty interesting. So anyway, if you, if you graduate from that, then you can move on to the quadrivium and the quadrivium is mathematics, um, geometry, astronomy, and music. And so, and then if you do all seven of those things, then you've got a, a doctorate. So that's how you become a PhD is by uh, mastering all seven of those. Um, most people kind of are not going to do that, but it's, it's a really interesting thing because the way that people relate to university is it's mostly at first kind of a way of getting ahead within the church. So um, in the first place to be at university, you, to be a student, you're a member of the clergy because um, students are really rowdy. I don't know if you've ever heard this about university students, but they do all the same stuff like as university students now in the medieval period. Like they are running out on bar tabs and they're very drunk and they're flirting and they're rowdy and they're constantly getting in trouble with the local townspeople. So Mostly the church is like- screaming at people, right? 
Yeah, exactly. It's, and everyone fucking hates them. Like, imagine, imagine a bunch of people who it's like they spend their day arguing and then they're like out on the street. Just the worst, the worst human beings on the planet, obviously. Um, so the church is like, right, okay, we will make all of the students clergy members as well. And then when they mess up, they won't get prosecuted in regular courts. We can like bring them into the church courts and they could just be like, now, now don't do that again. And it's like the real equivalent, uh, for example, like um, in the States uh, where you have a real campus culture of universities, it'll like, you know, they have their own security that'll like go take care of students' house parties and stuff. Cause it's like, let's just not involve the local cops. All right. You know, it, it's like the same, it's the same kind of um, reference. So I find the medieval universities really fascinating and important because it gives us a lot of like our big medieval thinkers. They're born of the system and it establishes the way that we still kind of do higher education. But there are all these like profound differences in just the way that universities are thought about what they mean and what they're set up for because they're largely set up for philosophy. That's kind of like the major thing they do. So they prepare you for a... A career in the church and failing that they will prepare you for a career at court so like this is there's only a small segment of the population that's really doing this but um they're really influential and interesting group of people and i love them so even though they're they're absolute absolute dick bags <laughs> my big thing at the moment is uh i'm having to research a history of suicide in western civilization at the moment for my whole, uh, world war one stuff and you, your your people, your medieval people, they're, they're fucked up, man. That, oh, yeah. But if someone killed themselves prior to about the year 1200, just people were sad for them. Year 1200, they start dragging the bodies around, stabbing the bodies, hanging the bodies. Yeah. I want to talk, I want to use this to springboard onto church versus law and this mm. whole church tentacles getting everywhere in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it's really interesting because the way that people kind of think of law in the Middle Ages is really different. Um, because in the first, like, I mean, there are laws about, you know, any number of things, but the major reason that law comes into being in the medieval period is to regulate property disputes. And like, that's that's what law is for. <laughs> it's, it's like, and that's you know, what it is. It's like they've sacrificed their property because yeah. they've killed mm-hmm. people and that's why you have the records of it. Yeah. And so like, there are two ways of thinking about things because it's like, there are sins and a sin isn't necessarily a crime, right? So if you do like a sin, then that's the church's problem. Sometimes a sin can also be a crime. Like, right. If you murder someone, then that is both a sin and a crime. But it's also really interesting because for stuff like, for example, murder in the medieval period, they don't really think about it in the same way that we do, because it is also sometimes kind of seen as like something that you've done to, it's almost like it is a property crime in that it's seen as like something that you've done to injure the community. So for example, if you kill someone, a lot of the time what your punishment will be like legally, like in the first place, you've got to do penance with the church. Um, and then like the church and law sort of agree that the way that you do that is it's like you have to make restitution to the person's family. And like, you probably have to like, go do like a big morning trip. You got to go somewhere and like rend your garments and this sort of a thing. You've got to go on um, pilgrimage, but it's like, nobody gets killed or anything like that for it. I mean, it would be one thing if you like killed a king or something that's like, all bets are off. Um, But the way that they tend to think about crime is it's like, well, to undo crime, you have to address what it is you've done. And for stuff like suicide, it's like, a really big deal because there's no way to redress that 
right? Because it's like, well, they're, they're already gone. So what they're kind of doing when they have these like big showy things is the same thing that, for example, kings will do when they catch anyone doing anything, right? Which is like, you have to have this big public display of how bad this is just to hit home to everyone. Like this is so messed up. This is beyond the pale. You can't do this. So you got to drag a suicide's body around and be like, don't you see this is bad and we hate it. And it's really bad. They're in hell now. It's terrible. Same thing if you get caught, for example, like poaching in the king's forest. You kill a deer, your ass is dead. You will be killed, right? And it's partially because there's nothing that anyone can do about that, Mm. right? So it's like you can't really stop anyone from killing themselves if they want to. And you can't always stop people from like poaching the king's deer. It's so unusual to get caught for doing a crime that whenever they do catch someone doing a crime, they're like, okay, all right, look, we got to like make sure that everyone knows you can't do this and it's bad. So it, it kind of actually is a symbol of the fact that you can't do anything about this. And um, it's so there's just this real different way of thinking about law. You can go ahead and make all the laws you want, but fundamentally the, the laws that people really do get caught up in are times when the community can say, okay, this happened. So it's like, that's why there's a lot of stuff about property. That's why, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff like in terms of what you can and can't do in cities. And then otherwise, a lot of the time it's just kind of left up to the church. So it's like, there's not necessarily going to be like, you know, like a law about, well, I mean, I actually was just about to say, there's not necessarily going to be a law about what you can and can't do on a Sunday, but then there are in like cities and stuff, I realize. But, you know, the point is like, there's there's times when it's like, well, does this, is this just like a property dispute, which means it's legal, or is this like moral, which means the church is involved? And there isn't a real strong distinction between those two things at the time. It's like, yeah, it's both. So. I mean, it's incredible that in, about 600 years time they're doing exactly the same principle of tying people up and saying look this is a bad thing and this is what happens to you so yeah. <laughs> they, they don't yeah. progress beyond this mentality yeah it's a, it's way more communal it's really interesting because it's like it's much more about like giving a lesson to the community as a whole and a lot less like okay well this individual did something bad so we have to like address the individual it's more about like what the community does and doesn't know if somebody was going to write a history of the modern period there's there's no way that they could get around talking about covid you're mm-hmm. writing about the medieval period you've got to talk about the black death so is this kind of yes. like a crusadesy type thing for you for Just, me no <laughs> so okay. this is the I'm, I'm like this is my bread and butter right here baby like i'm all in on black death chat right so like you know i'm such a hypocrite right because i'm like oh crusades do we have to boo and then i'm all like sit down guys it's black death time you know like let's just <laughs> the reason why you do it, right? Um, I'm obsessed with the Black Death. Um, And I'm obsessed with the Black Death because, you know, all those reasons I was like, oh, I don't really want to write about the Crusades because it's kind of like so weird. So I get around it by talking about culture. Like with the Black Death, it's all cultural, right? Like every single aspect of it is cultural. However many people died, it's like huge ramifications for how society lives. Um, The way medicine seeks to explain it, same deal. How religion seeks to explain it. And it's pretty much almost the entire world that's involved in this one particularly bad outbreak other than like Australia and the Americas, right? So it's you know, a quarter of the population of the entire world dies. And it's like, well, what? Well, I mean, like, just think about that. It's like, there's no way to even really get your head around that. Like, if you think how much COVID has affected us all, and in comparison, COVID 
like is super benign. I'm the, I'm, I'm not a COVID truther. Stay inside, like get inoculated, do all those things. But like, if, if we're comparing it to the Black Death, come on now, come on. It's like, it's 25% worldwide. Keep in mind that we've got three continents that are not even involved. So there's places like, for example, Florence that lose 60% of their population, six zero. You know, and like, and what, what does that do to you? So it's like, I'm really interested in how culture reacts to this because it's just like one of the biggest things that's ever, ever happened to us. And it's so big that we still kind of have like these emotional scars about it, even in the modern period. Like the minute COVID happened, the number one thing that people were like, oh, can you please come talk to the news about was they, they would just like come and talk to us about the black death. And I'd be like, guys, uh, not even the same thing, but you know, like it's still for us, it's like, um, it is the pandemic, right? So it still occupies this place in our own cultural imaginations. And I think that's so interesting. So um, I treat it in uh, more detail than other things. You know, we talk about where it comes from. We talk about like medical explanations. We talk about what that does in terms of, you know, city life versus country life. So there's a lot on the Black Death, Um, but that's just because I love it. Sorry. Sorry, I'm cheesy. I can't help it. I love it. At the end of the book is the fact that there's cartoons of all you historians, including you, yeah. about <laughs> what constitutes the end of the medieval period. Yeah. Um, so I basically, uh, those are all pictures of my friends. <laughs> so uh, in there, so I've got Manuel, Simon, Sarah and Carissa are all in there. And uh it, we they I just kind of like assign people random things where it's like you know what you know we say okay well the beginning of the medieval period 476 easy right fall floral what's the end of the medieval period you know like the end of the medieval period is more of a vibe you know it's more like what we can all say is that like it's definitely over by the 16th century at some point you have used the words the myth of the renaissance in there that's right you don't believe in it, do you? No, I don't. It's just, it's propaganda made up by some Florentines and everyone has like absolutely like, I, I don't know why everyone just believes Giorgio Vasari, but like apparently we do. And well, I do know why. It's because Voltaire's a prick. Oh, you know, well, we've done this before. We've we? done this before. So we don't even need to go back at it. But it's like, everyone's just like taking Voltaire and Giorgio Vasari's word for it, right? So it's like, things were bad and now they're good. But this is like, I'm very simple. And, you know, partially we like that because then it means that we're good. Like we're on the right side of it. But, you know, the Renaissance is like a series of dudes painting pictures. And I'm sorry, but that's not even how culture works, especially at the time. It's like some dude painting a picture in Florence is not going to do you much good if you work in a fucking soybean field. Well, I mean, not soybean, but, like, you know. In the meantime as well, uh, Spanish Inquisition, it ain't all great. Yeah, like life expectancy goes down in like the medieval period in Florence. Like, sorry, not in the medieval, in the, in the Renaissance, quote unquote, in Florence. It, it gets worse. Like you know, there's, everyone just goes, oh yeah. And then like uh, Michelangelo made a statue and then stuff was fucking great. We loved it. And it's like, yeah, you know, uh, what's your favorite part of the Renaissance? Mine was the syphilis. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's, this is like when we have syphilis, we have like an increase of wars. We have like all of these other problems that come at the time. And it's really silly to just be like, oh yeah, well, I like perspective in art. So like, therefore everything was better. It's a very nice ceiling though. I mean, 
don't don't get me wrong. That's a nice ass ceiling. Okay. Um, also, part of my deal is that I'm way more about the um, like the Flemish Renaissance. Like, give me a Van Eyck all day long. I'm obsessed with Van Eyck paintings. I just think that they're better. But it's so it's just really interesting because it's like essentially when we talk about the Renaissance, everybody's been taken in by an infomercial. Like, <laughs> and it's just so weird. It's like, okay, like, I mean, it would it would be like all of us losing our minds about a wonder mop or something. I don't, like, <laughs> I'm not sure what the deal is, but you know, there it is. Like, I don't. And and you are, really put- aren't you more all about everyday people as yeah. well, and not just like blowing on about artists and stuff? Yeah, and it's not like I don't like art. Like, yo, of course I like art. I'm not a monster or whatever. But like how a couple rich people like decorate their fucking ballroom doesn't <laughs> mean like anything for your average person on the street, right? So I'm interested in society. I'm interested in normal people and like how they're kind of going about their daily lives. And this has nothing to do with them and it doesn't change the way the world works. And it doesn't change the way the world works in a lot of the ways that people think it does. It's like, you still have humoral medicine, you know, you still like people will be like, Oh yeah, well reason and all these things will brought in. And like the Renaissance is great. And the medieval period is bad because of religiousness. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you think the Renaissance is not religious? Yeah. Like go look, like all of the art is just Jesus. Have you Come ever on. met a fucking Anabaptist? Oh, like it's insufferable people right so it's just like which me- is gonna lead zach onto his question which he's <laughs> asked since the very beginning because he loves hearing you rant i think it actually turns him on <laughs> we'll call it an education um rather than a, a, a turn on joy i'm not sure that actually makes it any better i'm just digging a deeper hole for myself um <laughs> but, but you're you're kind of telling me a whole load of things that I'm thinking but as a teacher a couple yeah. of years ago I was in a classroom telling kids these things and one of the things that I was given as one of the first lessons to teach because they just kind of gave you yeah, yeah, yeah stuff yeah. and said look kids see what you can do was that we were kind of we gave these kids a picture of uh, a medieval house and they they're sleeping with the animals and they don't wash um, and they're they're superstitious and they're obsessed with religion and all these things and I'm just thinking this is just the perfect thing to trigger you. So yeah, let <laughs> I mean, so it's it's so interesting because it's like, okay, first off, the sleeping with the animals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, peasants were doing that up into the 19th fucking century. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, um, we have descriptions of like peasants' farmhouses here in England, and they're sleeping with their animals. So, like, don't go around like blaming medieval people for that. Like modern people absolutely did that too did medieval people do it yeah it's really smart in a world without well, central heating love about teeth as well teeth teeth no better off until fluoride came in than a person in the medieval ages would yeah teeth odds are a person in the medieval period is going to have better teeth than a person in the modern period before fluoride because they didn't have sugar so um, their teeth are probably better because cavities and all of that come like more specifically when we have um, better supplies of sugar that come in from the new world. So medieval people, like, sure, do they have honey and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. But they have a, a diet that's much, much lower in sugar. So, and they do certainly still have like teeth problems. We all have other ones, but actually um, someone, for example, in the 19th century has worse teeth than the average person in you know the 14th century what uh, else because you get to smash out of the park in this park? bathing medieval people bathed 
it's like oh my god medieval people bathes it's like it's like their number one pastime they fucking love a bath so I they love do that it's like as if the renaissance comes along and suddenly they discover bathing. like wash yeah like it's no they, they were bathing the whole time and it's, it's really interesting um, i'm writing my next book at the moment um and it's all about women in the medieval period and one of the big um kind of careers for women in the medieval period is running bathhouses so like uh, there's there's just something about like water is kind of like feminized. So um, the women, the people who work in bathhouses are usually women who are just like, you know, keeping all the tubs hot and getting the fresh water out. And it's like, yeah, everybody be going to the spa all the time. Like, I mean, it's just like it's it's normal, you know, and they did wash and they all 100 percent did this. And it's interesting because what people think about like, oh, medieval people didn't bathe in the first place. And um, they're talking about modern people. Because, like, uh, it does, bathing kind of goes out of fashion in, like, the 17th century, 18th century. Um, and then there's a different conception of cleanliness. Um, so it's like uh, they would just change their clothes all the time. Um, instead of washing, they would, like, change their clothes constantly and wash their clothes. And so cleanliness became associated with wearing really clean clothes. And um, we do know, actually, like we, there, there are people who've like done tests on this and stuff. You smell better if you don't bathe but have super clean clothes on all the time than you do if you do bathe and wear dirty clothes because like clothes really um, pick up smells. That's neither here nor there because that's not medieval people because Louis XIV isn't fucking medieval. Like, I mean, this is just like, <laughs> it, it's one, of the, and then people go, oh, well, what about this story about how Louis XIV only took two baths in his life? I'm like, cool story, bro. He's modern. Yeah. <laughs> that's the fucking baroque period like don't like that has nothing to do with me you know and or there'll be weird things about like there's a myth about like queen elizabeth the first or like bathing monthly even if she didn't need it and it's like that's not real like it's it's like a fake anecdote that that doesn't really exist and but people love to repeat it and and then even then if it was true she is not medieval <laughs> <laughs> she is early modern so it's like you know, every single time it's like people have this tendency to anytime they think something is in the past and it's bad it's medieval and it's like that's just, that's literally not how time works everybody i need you to pull it together <laughs> like get your words right so all right then superstition yeah superstition is a really interesting one because it's like how are medieval people more superstitious than like again early modern people like early modern people are the ones who go in with like the witch craze and stuff mm. so it's like that's not medieval people right another one is this fallacy that you have taken apart and it's a beautiful illustration in the book um, about the humans that accompanies this this fallacy that classical people really knew their shit when it came to medicine and then everybody in the world forgot it for the whole medieval period and then the renaissance came along. Yeah, it's like this is, I once interrupted a woman on the bus who was reading a horrible histories to her daughter when she said this. When I was like, I'm, excuse me, I'm sorry, no. Like I couldn't keep it in. Like, where, <laughs> like she, uh, and she was all like, oh, well the Romans had wonderful this and that and medicine. And I was like, I'm going to have to stop you right there, ma'am. I'm going to have to stop this uh, campaign of propaganda, which you're just wrong about. It's like Roman people didn't have workable medicine. Greek people did not have, they had the humoral system that medieval people were also working on. And medieval people actually had better medicine because medieval people actually had better access to doing um, like autopsies and things. 
Um, yeah, like it's a huge period of time and that, um, ebbs and flows. And sometimes it's like, okay to dissect corpses. And sometimes it's not, um, in Italy, it's usually always more cool than like in England, uh, there'll be a lot more prescriptions about it, for example. So it varies place to place, but people have a way better understanding of like what the insides of the human body are like, um, surgery really comes on a lot of leaps and bounds in the medieval period. Um, and Romans and Greeks didn't have any, like, I don't know where the fuck people get this idea that they had, like, we're making penicillin or some shit. And it's like, it's in the first place they weren't. Yeah, it isn't it? It's that book. Yeah. And, and, and then the Renaissance doesn't do anything to change that. They still believe in humoral theory. Everybody believes into humor, in humoral theory up until like the scientific revolution. Like germ theory is not discovered until the 19th fucking century. Like I don't know what, <laughs> like it's, it, you're not any bet like worse off in the medieval period than you are at any other time before we figured out what germs are, right? And like after we figured out what germs are, we've got pretty good at shit now, but we did not know what those were. Like for a really, really long time. And it's not medieval people. Like what, like what, come on now. Like why, why, what, like what is it about them uniquely that, you know, like people think that like what Romans didn't get the plague or something. Come on, come on now. Honestly. Let's just blame Turn me up a wall. <laughs> it's all his fault. Yeah. It's, it, it's completely all his fault. And it's like, and guess what? That motherfucker didn't have workable medicine either. No. So what do you want from me? You know, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's just basically you didn't want to be alive and get sick at any point in time, really before kind of like the mid 20th century. <laughs> it's like, it's all bad, you know, like um, if you, if you think it's bad enough, just like a sitting around waiting for your vaccine now, baby, I got to tell you, it's, it's a long, it's a long one. <laughs> Eleanor, as ever, you've come along and made us look stupid because we spend our lives staffing around over a few uh, minutes. But I do four and a half. <laughs> that does about ten, and then our minds are blown. And you do like a thousand years. You depress me. You're amazing. The book is amazing. We're going to put it on our history hat bookshop. Go and buy it. Buy or my book, please. <laughs> yeah. Buy the damn book. And buy it via the link because then we get money, Eleanor gets money, and Amazon don't get any of the money. Yeah, screw Amazon. Although, you know, go on to Amazon and then review it and say how much you liked it and how good it is because apparently that's helpful. I don't know. It is. But yeah, independent bookshops get supported by independent bookshops. Co.uk, baby. Boom. Boom. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.